Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hadjassad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. Now, if this is the first time you're listening to this podcast, thank you for trying something new. I'm just going to reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. You can find our work all over the internet, and usually I take this time to let Ben plug a couple of things uh, and publications that he's written for recently. Go for it, Ben. Well, uh, you can find my work at Haggerty Classic Car, at Driving Line, at Inside Hook, and at Motor Trend. And I also wanted to say that my graphic novel is currently available on Kickstarter. It's called Code 45, and it's about uh, it's a tale of dragons, drugs, and underground raves in the subway tunnels below the streets of Montreal. You can find it at www.code-45.com. That's code-45.com. And it will be available until August 6th, issues 1 through 3. And I know, uh, I've said this before, but the artwork and the writing in it is fantastic. I have issue one, and I can't wait for the next few issues to come out. Now, back to what we were talking about. Uh, you can find my work at autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine. Uh, ben, this week we're going to talk about two cars with the exact, no, not the exact, a very similar sounding trim level. So I want you to <laughs> take, take it away. You've got the 2020 Ford Explorer but a special one. What is it? It's the Ford Explorer ST, Sammy. And as you pointed out when we were, <laughs> when we were talking uh, before the episode, before we began recording, you correctly pointed out that this means that it's the Explorer you can take to the track. Yeah, sure. That's what those two letters mean. And then you sent me a link to the Ford ST SUV Experience, which yeah. if you – okay, if you click that link – it, it takes you to it's like a it takes you to a page that's kind of like an arcade game where it's like select your fighter except here the first thing you see is select your vehicle and the two choices are the Edge ST and the Explorer ST and honestly if I you just, was you going, just closed the tab didn't you? yeah if I was going to a performance driving school I, I feel like this would be the saddest decision of my life like for you to make so many. Out. What's that? Yeah. I want to point out additionally that it's called specifically the ST SUV experience. Now, I'm trying to – I'm racking my brain trying to figure out what other ST models are there right now. Yeah, it's it's because there used to be so many. You could drive the Focus. You could drive the Fiesta, which were really cool cars. Yeah. Um, and now they're gone. And I'm not I'm not saying this to, to, to talk, put shade on Ford. I mean, Ford can make high-performance versions of their SUVs. I'm fine with that. But the idea of going to a driving school in either of these vehicles, I think, would be very disappointing. I just don't uh, think it's the kind of vehicle you would take to a racetrack and enjoy. I think it's the kind of vehicle you drive every day and enjoy. That's that's my take on huge performance SUVs. Okay, so well, like we got to talk a little bit more about this this Explorer ST. I've t- I've driven the uh, Edge ST in the past, and I was really unimpressed. In fact, I don't think that the ST badge should be um, affixed to a vehicle as unrefined and unenjoyable as that Edge. Um, and I was wondering if you were as equally unimpressed with the Explorer, or if you think. Uh, the Explorer is a good enough base for them to to add tons of power to it and see how it goes. Well, I I, I have to say they're very different vehicles. Yeah. I mean, one of them, the the Edge ST, is a front wheel drive based all wheel drive crossover. The Explorer ST for 2020, it's moved to a rear wheel drive platform. Really? And, yes, and it's a lot bigger. It's it's got. I, I mean, obviously it's all wheel drive, but it's it's a rear wheel drive platform at its core. Uh, and it's it's its size is. I mean, it's an extra row compared to the Edge, right? 
and it's more truck-like. And I think it kind of – this is the kind of vehicle that's going up against the Dodge Durango SRT. Um, and it's in, – in that segment, I mean, I think the Explorer ST is an interesting option. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the vehicle. I went on a road trip. I uh, The road trip took me to a rural part of Quebec where there were almost no roads at times. So I was semi-off-roading in it which I'm sure 90% of owners will never do. But I, I got a chance. What I'm saying is I got a chance to explore, LOL, a large <laughs> range of what people will be doing behind the wheel of this particular SUV. Okay, so then uh, I have two questions. Is Do you think the ST trim of this was particularly suited to one environment over the other? or And what was the best experience you had with this Ford Explorer ST then? So the thing that makes the ST the ST is it has that 3-liter twin-turbo V6, right? Yeah. And that gives you 400 horsepower, which is not an insubstantial amount of power. I remember when that was an amazing number that would have made me crazy. Uh, in my, my own, my Cadillac CTSV has that much power. And when I first got it, I was like, wow, that's... This is my personal power limit. I'll never need more than this. Um, And now you can get it in an Explorer. (laughs) Um, Anyway, it's very quick in a straight line. It feels very fast. It doesn't feel like it doesn't blow you away fast, but it does zero to 60 in just a tick over five seconds. Okay. For a vehicle of its size, that's impressive. I mean, it's not – last week we were talking about the X7 M50i, which costs – three times the price of this vehicle. Uh, this uh, The Explorer comes in around $54,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's only a half second faster, right, to, to 60. I'm sure it weighs a little bit more. But it's, it's just interesting that, you know, these vehicles, they're, they're a lot cl- – like, I think that the difference between a really fast SUV in the luxury segment and in the non-luxury segment, they're closer than in the uh, sports car segment and the, the sports sedan segment for some reason. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'd have to say on on the road, very comfortable, lots of passing power. Um, honestly, it felt more refined than I expected it to because I remembered how much you hated the Edge ST. So I was really prepared for the Explorer to, be, to have like a bouncy ride that was just like rattling me all the time. And it didn't. And I think that that might be the extra weight of the vehicle maybe coming into play. Okay. And um, it's important to point out though, like I'm surprised in, in your ex- – with that experience because – the Explorer is supposed to have uh, like firmer suspension and bigger uh, roll bars, um, and I was wondering if that was noticeable or not. Not really. I mean, I didn't take it on. I drove it quickly, but I wasn't on a racetrack because I didn't, you know, I didn't do the STSUV experience. I guess is what I'm saying. That's but okay. it was it was you know smaller two lane roads that were fairly mm-hmm. twisty around the mountains. And it handled itself well. I never really felt like the vehicle was out of control. I never really felt like I was pushing it to its limits, which I think is good for a vehicle this size. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a driver's vehicle at all. It's just a large, comfortable people mover. That's really how it felt. It, you know, I think you could take this. I'm not sure. If, is this engine available in the Platinum, Sammy? I think so as well. I, there might also be a more powerful or maybe it's the hybrid I'm thinking of um, that is available in the Platinum model. Let me double check with you for for a quick second here. It, it because the reason I ask is because I like the motor a lot. I, I think mm-hmm. it would be um, I would enjoy it in a more plush version of the truck. the 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 thing that let me down the most about the Explorer ST is I kept like looking back uh, at the second row, and in the X7 that I had, this is a totally unfair comparison, but, but in, the, in the X7 it had you know beautiful leather in the second row. It's really nicely pointed turned out 
in the in the Explorer, I kept looking back and there was like a black hole between the two seats in the second row. And I kept thinking that I'd left a cooler or something back there. But then I would mm-hmm. look again and no, it's just like the, the black floor and the black plastic and the black whatever that's – it just had a kind of a plasticky feel uh, well, I mean, it's a more, Ford. Yeah, but it's a $54,000 vehicle. And it was I, a little bit p- more plasticky than I wanted it to be. I have the answer for your question. The ST and the Platinum both offer the same 3-liter uh, EcoBoost engine, but there are differences with their output. The Platinum uh, only makes 365 horsepower and 380 pound-feet of torque, while the ST, as you mentioned... Uh, has 400 horsepower and 415 pound-feet of torque. That's very interesting. I mean, I'm not sure if I would miss it in the Platinum. I'm sure the engine's competent. But uh, the, the the Explorer was nice to drive. And it was, on, at, the end of, at the end of my fairly long day of driving, I didn't feel worn out. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did transport a bunch of stuff in it. It was reasonable for that. Um, it, you have a huge amount of room if you fold the seats down. I think you actually have to remove the seats in the second row, though which is a bit of a hassle if you want to make use of all of the storage space. Mm-hmm. But it's a very practical vehicle. Uh, it wasn't that difficult to park. Um, I, you know, It has the new version of Sync, I believe, which is okay. I think it could look better. Uh, it did. Uh, we were talking again before the podcast. It did that thing that all Fords do with my Android device, which is when it connects to the Bluetooth, it launches a music app I haven't used or even thought about in <laughs> perhaps months. And... I can't stop it from doing that. It, it it doesn't. Most cars will go back to the one you were most recently using, and for me, that's usually Spotify. But in this case, it was launching a a digital radio app that I hadn't used in forever, and it kept doing it again and again. So that was frustrating. It's not the only Ford that's done that, so that might be like a sync specific thing. Um, and then I wanted to ask you. Um, there's there's like a feeling that. Were you eager to get out of it, or were you okay to spend all that time in it? I mean, taking a long road trip uh, can sometimes – it's not quite tire you out, but it's like I can't wait to get where I'm going so I can get out of the car. And So the thing about this road trip was there was no destination. We were just kind of cruising around in some lakes and mountains outside the city, a chance right. to get away and just be in a different environment. So I never really felt – it was also very hot outside, so it was nice to be in the car. So it kind of maybe not the not the, not a fair comparison. Kind of mm-hmm. like my X7 comparison. Uh, I did, though, having just come out of the BMW, I was constantly comparing it in my mind. I was like, you know, we'd probably be that much more comfortable in the BMW than we were yeah. in the in the Explorer. But the Explorer, I think I think if it was a little bit cheaper, I would be more willing to overlook some of the plasticky aspects of it. Uh, it, it never felt special or refined. It felt quick and comfortable and useful. I think that's and- kind of how it came across. And that's my biggest issue with that ST badge is that it oh those uh, former vehicles that you mentioned the Fiesta and the um, Focus both felt pretty special. They yeah, felt the Focus was really cool. I really I really liked that vehicle. And when you drove them, you felt like this could not be re- it, it. It felt so distantly re- related to the normal Focus and Fiesta that you could be enjoying yourself in such a manner. Um, in a car with a similar a similar nameplate. And it seems like that isn't the case with the Explorer, that the ST is just another trim level, um, just with more power. And what, what I will point out, too, is that versus the Durango SRT, which has a crazy V8 and makes crazy mm-hmm. noises, the Explorer, I mean, it has a more aggressive look, that's for sure. Mine was dark blue with the, the blacked-out grille and everything. Uh, but it doesn't have the same visceral experience as a Durango. Because you don't really have any in- engine sound, it's not something that you would. You don't 
start it up and go, mm, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to hit the gas and, and kind of make my presence known with this thunderous exhaust. It's not that kind of experience at all. So I think that's right. a little a little something that's missing from it. And I understand that Ford has moved away from V8s as being their, um, I guess, flagships when it comes to horsepower. Right. And only the Mustang does it really still have that role. But it's philosophically, it's it's a different approach, and I think it will appeal to some and not to others. And then finally, I wanted to ask if there are any standout um, features, anything you weren't expecting in terms of um, amenities or, or, or you know, add-ons. I had a bad experience with the automatic cruise control. Um, oh no! Yeah, I was coming. What do you mean by bad experience? Well, What's I that? was I was driving down the highway at about 65, 70 miles an hour. And I had – it has – so the vehicle will drive it to do the lane keeping on its own if you want, like semi-self-steering. Um, right. I didn't have that on, but I did have the adaptive cruise control on. And there was a long line of cars that were stopped ahead because there was a construction merge. And the Explorer zoomed way up behind the vehicle yeah. that was ahead of me, and it didn't stop. Yeah, and I had to hit the brake. me right out. Yeah, I had to hit the brake because it was way too close. And I've... when I hit the brake, the collision warning went off. <laughs> so – I don't understand what what I don't get is I, the adaptive cruise control. I'm 100 percent sure was on because I wasn't on the gas or anything at that speed, and I was maintaining my speed. And I'd been using it for quite a while, um, probably 40 minutes of driving. So I don't understand why it timed out. But that's the kind of thing that makes me so wary of using these kinds of advanced driving features in certain situations. There are a few adaptive cruise control systems that really don't know how to. Um how to adjust or adapt or, or get ready for a stop traffic in front of you. So I think that's an area where they don't, where they really let um, drivers down and that's where you really have to, to intervene. Um, and this to- does remind me a little bit of that Ranger that you had that kept going on about its forward collision warning yeah, while you were approaching. I, yeah, um, I, didn't have, I didn't have that this time. It was interesting. You mentioned traffic ahead. So I was caught in traffic at very low speeds at mm-hmm. one point during my drive, and I had the automated cruise. I feel like adaptive cruise control is best for those situations. It takes for like a lot creeping, of, yeah. creeping. Uh, it takes a lot of frustration traffic. out of it. But yeah. the Ford system was, was both good and bad. So um, – if it stopped for too long, you would have to trigger it to go forward again, which is pretty normal. But on yeah. most cars, you can hit the gas and it yep. will it will start again. On the Ford, you have to hit resume on the button. Uh, okay. That's annoying. It did allow someone to merge in front of me, which I was impressed with. Someone, It was, again, a two-to-one merge and the person was on my left and they had their flasher on and cut in front of the car and the Explorer knew to let them in. But mm-hmm. conversely, when I pulled out to uh i i decided to take an exit mm-hmm. the car went by me on the right i pulled out to get into the same lane as the car that had passed me the explorer surged forward really quickly even though there was another car ahead as uh, if that car wasn't there and then it slammed on the brakes really hard oh, I so hate that. why was it so aggressive in pulling out the radar clearly saw something that was so it's a mixed bag i guess that's yeah. going back to my other point is you can't really tell how it's going to react. And if it's not predictable, that's it, it's just kind of worrisome all the time. To add a little bit, not to make things really like uh, like the sky is falling, but I have to I, I just remembered that with the upcoming F-150 that there's going to be a, a you know, a package that allows hands off um, semi autonomous driving. 
And uh, I don't know how comfortable I'd feel with that based on these experiences with um, Copilot 360 Assist or whatever it's called in the Ford. And and, um, and and I want to point out, too, this is a bright, sunny day. So there was no weather involved. Uh, so, again, it's, it's worth pointing out that those uh, upcoming features will probably have some sort of map integration, kind of like how Super Cruise does it. But um, it'll be interesting to see if the sensors and radars get upgraded as well. Is there anything else you want to add about the Explorer ST? No, I mean, I, I was prepared for the worst, but uh, pleasantly surprised by what I found. I think it's a little expensive for what you get. I don't really think anyone's going to be driving it in a sporty way. I liked the power. I didn't really need the suspension. Um, but even on some of the nasty non-roads I was on in in the country area I was in, it didn't really feel like that suspension was a liability. Okay. Uh, would you participate in if you had bought this, or if you know somebody who, uh, or if if you know somebody who bought it? Would you encourage them to do the ST SUV experience? I encourage everyone to go to a driving school to become a better driver, a more attentive driver, and someone who's better prepared to deal with a bad situation on the road. So my answer would have to be yes. Yeah. I'm not sure how much fun you would have in a vehicle of this size, but you, the more seat time you spend with an instructor beside you who's helping you become a better driver, the better you'll be on public roads. Now, you've gone to some driving uh, or some track events with SUVs, right? Like the Trackhawk, for example. Yes. Or uh, is it Cayenne or BMW M vehicles? I have you've, all of those, yes. You've, done, you've gone on track with those. And yes. It's not to say that they're unenjoyable. They're just less enjoyable than... No, I would, say they are, car, right? I would say they're unenjoyable. I would huh. say it is yeah. a disengaged driving... Ex- I'll, I'll, I'll use the example. Whenever someone asks me about this, there's one example I always go back to. When the first generation X6M came out, I went to Circuit of the Americas to drive it. And Circuit of the Americas has a three-quarter of a mile rear back straight, basically. Huge. So I was in that vehicle, and I was doing a video for a publication, and... <laughs> The the I look back on the footage after, and I'm driving at 130 miles an hour, casually talking to the camera as if nothing is going on. That is how insulated that experience was, being inside that car. It, it's driving itself. It's full of sensors and all-wheel drive systems and uh, computer aids. You're not really doing anything. It's like being in the space shuttle. It goes super fast, but you have little to do with any of that. You're just a passenger along for the ride. And then at the end of the straight, I braked and I made the corner. So right. it, it's very drama-free. And for that reason, I don't find it fun. I, the Trackhawk is less drama-free because it has so much more power. But at the same time, it's not something I would ever choose to take to a racetrack. Ever. My, my it's very with, good. It's very competent, but it's not something I would ever choose to do. My experience with the bigger with these bigger vehicles on track is that there's, uh, despite how much uh, effort and energy goes into uh, making the suspension stiffer and balancing um, roll or or weight transfer, you get a lot of that in these cars uh, in comparison to a sedan or a or a sports car. And as a result, you end up um, – if you get caught in a, in a tricky situation, you end up having to work really hard to, to adjust for it. Um, and it's really un, – it's, really un, um, it's, it's kind of scary to be honest if you've ever been in a, in a nosediving sort of SUV um, at, the end of a, at the end of a straight. When well, really- momentum is momentum, right? There's exactly. There's much you can do about that. But uh, the other thing to keep in mind with these vehicles is you better have an unlimited brake and tire budget. Absolutely, this yeah. This weighs like 5,000 pounds. Of, you better love the smell of, of brakes and rubber. 
Um, okay, I, I'll I'll continue our conversation here. I drove a Subaru Legacy, and this is the XT model, not ST like yours, but XT, um, which is a throwback to the old um, performance variants of the Legacy, um, and I think Forester as well, which were called the XTs. Yeah, well, the, the Legacy was never the XT, but the, the Forester It was the was. GT, right? Yes. Yes. So the and in, what's funny is in Canada the Legacy Turbo that I had is called the GT, which is a better throwback to the Legacy uh, performance models, right? Yes, it's a more a- appropriate throwback. So the big deal about this car is it's pretty much a Legacy, which means it's a, an all-wheel drive sedan, family sedan, but it's got a 2.4 liter turbocharged Boxer engine, uh, pretty much the same unit that you see in the Outback and. Subaru Ascent, that's what it's called. I almost forgot. Um, <laughs> and I also like, I don't know if you, you've done it too, but you probably, um, I don't know. I'm, sometimes I mistake the Ascent for like Atlas or some other vehicle as well. You know, it's I, it's funny you say that because I have come up behind several Atlases in the last couple of weeks and thought they were Ascents. <laughs> and then the other day I came up behind a B9 Tribeca, which what? is unmistakably not anything other than a Subaru. Right. Um, so it's a 2.4 liter uh, turbocharged engine. It makes um, 260 horsepower, 260 horsepower, and 277 pound-feet of torque. Is that enough good... for you, Sammy? Yeah, that's actually it. Is a very um, sweet engine, and I think you've experienced this in the Outback before. It's a very nice um, fit. And what Subaru has done with their turbocharged four-cylinder and I mean, it's a continuously variable transmission, but Subaru has really managed their their CVTs pretty well, in my opinion. They feel really responsive off the line, and they find a a peak torque um, band pretty quickly when you want to make a pass. So I'm really impressed with that. Um, But I think it's – and based on the figures I see, this thing can hit highway speeds in about um, six seconds or so, which isn't so bad. I mean, it's a bit – the sad part's a bit slower than your 400 horsepower um, Explorer ST there, but I guess that's to be expected when you're missing. What's that interesting much to me? Horsepower. What's interesting to me is we're in a world right now where you can get um, a 300 something horsepower Camry. Yeah, and Subaru could have made this motor 300 horsepower, but they chose not to. So I'm assuming the Camry's faster. I think that's fair. Um, I don't remember. I, think- I mean, I've driven it; it felt quick. I don't remember the exact numbers. But it's a little weird to me. If you're going to make a high-performance version of your car, make a high-performance version of your car. Don't go halfway. So that's what I'm curious about is I don't know if this is the quote-unquote high-performance. It's not the – you know, it's not, I don't know if this is the, the high-performance version of the, the Legacy. I think it's just the upgraded engine version. Um, okay, but but I'm just saying like it's it's still the, the most powerful Legacy you can buy. And, and who's it up against? Yeah, the Camry. Um, and the there's also the Accord, which um, that's not offered with a V6 anymore. No, is it? but it has a, it has a two-liter turbo, turbo, right? Which makes it roughly around the same horsepower as this. And then there's that, uh, I think there's the VC turbocharged, um, the variable compression turbocharged Ultima? Yes. Uh, although I don't think you can get that with all-wheel drive. And you can't get the Honda with all-wheel drive either. No. So, but I'm just Camry, saying it's – all-wheel it's, drive is just – is kind of new. So I guess that what Subaru is counting on is people will be like, this is the only all-wheel drive sedan I can get with a turbo. Yeah. And that's – I think that's pretty important to bring up is as far as I know, I'm not 100% certain, but I believe the Camry all-wheel drive is only available as 2.5 uh, four-cylinder. So if you want a higher performance 
um, all-wheel drive model, you have to get the the Subaru. Okay. Which I think is an important distinction to make. It's it's so I looked in the Camry with the V6 is about half a second faster. It's and five, that's five front wheel seconds. And that's the front wheel drive version, yes. right? There, there isn't an all wheel drive V6, right? No. Well, I okay. not that I've seen. Not that I've seen either. That's quick. That's very quick for a, for a family sedan. <laughs> yes. Um, what I will admit is that I do enjoy the the feeling of of acceleration in this legacy, but everything else about it is pretty insulate uh, is pretty isolated. Uh, the suspension is very soft. The steering is a little bit. Um, it feels really boosted. It feels a little bit too light at times, and then sometimes it can feel a little too heavy. Like it's just inconsistent in that way. Um, one of the things that I think Subaru has made a huge stra- uh, a huge step with. And I mentioned this last week with the Forester, is its interiors. This is a gorgeous interior. Um, and uh, I've got this gorgeous tan uh, leather. Uh, there's only an issue with some um, piano black um, plastics around the infotainment system. And this infotainment system is worth pointing out because it's huge. It's about, ele- I think it's 11 point, um, 11.6 inches. It's a vertical layout, which um, looks very similar to what you'd see in like a Ram, for example. You know that Ram 1500, the fully loaded version with the Uconnect? Yes. Actually, that's something I wanted to mention about the Explorer that I did. And it had the same vertical type of arrangement for its screen. But in the Explorer, unlike the Ram, it sticks up over the dash. Right. It was just awkward. I didn't, I didn't see a reason for it. I feel like they could have used a horizontal and it would have been better. So this one as well is set into the dash. Um, that comes with its, uh, its, its, you know, the, the upside is it doesn't look like that in the Explorer. It kind of doesn't pinch, it doesn't pinch your forward visibility or anything like that. The downside is if you've got the um, sunroof open, you can get a lot of glare on that thing and you won't be able to see it very clearly um, pretty often, I think. That's what I found so far in my, in my experience with the car. Additionally, it's a very slow um, touchscreen. I really did not like using it. And all of the HVAC controls are in this touchscreen, which makes using them really frustrating to do simple things like change, uh, like add one more increment to the fan um, is, is a pain in the butt. Trying to change, uh, turn on or turn off or switch from heating to cooled seats is also a few too many taps. And while this car also has Android Auto and Apple CarPlay support, that portion of this, this screen, basically this giant 11-inch screen gets cut in half for the Android Auto and Apple CarPlay application. And the bottom half is pretty much useless, except for these tiny little buttons um, and tiny information area for the HVAC controls. And I found that absolutely a poor use of this gorgeous giant touchscreen. So um, overall, would you say, so you didn't really get the impression that this was the sporty version of the Legacy, just that it was no. the one with the biggest engine? It's just the faster version. It's the fastest Legacy. Okay. That's what it is. So there's no suspension uh, upgrades to speak of, really? It doesn't feel like it if there was. It really is a soft ride. Um, really, really, honestly, almost luxury-like. Um, and what I really do like is I think um, in the um, Outback XT, I had some issues with ride quality not being as um, as good as I wanted it to be. And yeah, I remember Legacy, that. I remember a similar thing when I drove the vehicle. And the Legacy does not have that same um, 
issue. It feels a little bit more luxurious, a little bit more comfortable, something that I can live with on a daily basis. And I thought that that must be the difference between trying to make a car that might go off road in the outback versus one that's probably planted on the on the pavement for its entire its entire life. So um, wrapping things up on the legacy, would you rec- is this a vehicle you can recommend over what's out there now? I know we mentioned a few of the competitors we just talked about, but is it better? I mean, quote that's unquote a- better. Real difficult question to ask. I truly believe that the best vehicle in this segment um, is probably the the fully loaded Accord. I think it's a very good vehicle, both inside and out, uh, in terms of its styling and design. It's very uh, ergonomic. It's got a ton of great features. Um, it feels really high tech with its like digital dashboard, and it's got a pretty good powertrain as well. The downside to it is it doesn't offer an all wheel drive component. So if you are if you need an all-wheel drive sedan, and at this point, I'm curious why you would definitely need that because there's so many all-wheel drive crossovers out there, which are practically based on the same sedans that we're talking about. Um, if you need a sedan that is all-wheel drive, you're stuck with the um, Ultima, which I don't think is um, is very uh, good. You have the Camry, but you only get the 2.54 liter, or you get the Legacy. And now of those, which you can get the turbocharged Legacy, if you want the performance version of the car, you're going to get the Legacy. You want lots of power. If you want the best all-wheel drive vehicle, I think the Camry might kind of pull it off because it's a it's a pretty attractive car inside and out. Um, it's got a very good four-cylinder engine, and it's offered a ton of features. And there's, of course, the Toyota fit and finish and um, expected reliability. And then if you, I think probably if you want the best deal, the Ultima would probably be the best. Yeah, you're uh, probably right there. You'd probably get the Ultima. Okay. Is that too much? Did I did I ramble on for too much about that? No, I think uh, that's what I think that's what people are curious about. Okay, cool. Now there's one more thing we should talk about before we get to some listener questions. Ben, you got a, another book to talk about this week, right? Yeah, so I I've had a book sent to me by um Motorbooks. And it's something that should be right up my alley. It's a it's the it's called Nissan Z: Fifty Years of Exhilarating Performance. And I know we have some Z, Z owners in the audience um, as well. And this book it's 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 the Nissan official chronicle of Z history. So I was pretty excited because a, a bunch of the motorbook stuff that we've reviewed this past year. Uh, we had a great book on for, about Porsche 911. We had a great book about the GT40. And they were really in-depth dives that taught me a lot about those vehicles. And they were clearly written by someone who not only had a passion for the the model, but just had an attention to um, all of those small facts and stories that surround the genesis of a vehicle that can really create like a depth of story. And this book does not have that. This book comes across – it's a coffee table book. Um, it's a it's a large format. It's filled with gorgeous photographs. That's probably my favorite aspect of it. And it covers the Z from the end until from the beginning until the end. So right up until the three seventy. Um, so like Fair Lady all the way to yeah, what we currently have. Not just As like the, the Z that I have, and even the yeah. Fair Lady Roadster before it, mm-hmm. up to what's what they have now. But it also has it, it comes across as very disjointed. Like there'll be some talk about the S30, the first generation Z, and then interspersed in that is all sorts of other information, small asides, chap like not really an extra chapter, but kind of like a, a two-pager um, that's inserted that talks about something that's fairly unrelated. At the end of the book, there's like a, a thing about restoration of the Z, which like 
talks to someone specifically who has one of these cars and what they went through with the car, their particular car. And um, <clears throat> there's someone – there's a section on collector Z's that again takes kind of like a a high-level look at which versions of the car are collectible. It just mm-hmm. – there's not the – unlike the 911 book, which this, is, this car is very much a contemporary of – yeah. It didn't really it didn't really show me, you know, um I guess an insider's look at the Z. I I came away not really learning anything about the car that I didn't already know. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't really feel like the person who was writing this book had a concrete idea of what they wanted to achieve. It really felt all over the place. So I would recommend it for people who are interested in the Z who really like uh, beautiful photos of, of cars, like all the way from the early cars to now, there's some really great photography. But if you're looking to learn something, it was a little bit like being on Wikipedia and jumping around to the links. Okay. If, if that makes sense. It's it's written by um, uh, Peter Evanow, and it's it's published by Motorbooks, uh, and it's called Nissan Z, 50 Years of Exhilarating Performance. So it's been out for a couple of months now, if you want to check it out. Actually, sorry, it just came out the 23rd of June. Um, and it's got 200 pictures across 176 pages, according to the press release. Cool. So, yeah, it's it's if you're a photo if you're a photo person, this is the book for you. But like I said, you're not going to learn a lot if you're in disease already. I've got a few follow up questions about it. First of all, uh, do you think the photos are um, they go they go beyond the excuse me? <coughs> do they go beyond the usual press photos that we're used to seeing? Oh yeah, that's it, it. It goes all the way back. There's archival stuff. <coughs> Some cool, some of the cool photos that I did really enjoy was there's a section where it takes a look at the the Z prototypes. So oh, cool! It's it. They originally wanted to do it as a roadster, right? To, or not necessarily a roadster, maybe like a four seat convertible. They were building on the idea of they never made a coupe, a performance coupe like this. So they had already the Fair Lady Roadster, and they're like, okay, well, we'll update the Roadster, but then they put a roof on it. So they end up with a car that had Roadster proportions with a roof. And instead of hatchback proportions, which is what we got. So there's several examples of that car and um, how it evolved to how it, how it looks now. But there's no there's no real in-depth look at why they ended up making it look how it is now. Like there's, there's a page that has four amazing photos of the evolution of the Z-Look. But the, there's only three paragraphs of text and, and none of them really have anything to do with, with that. Uh, and then the next page, it, it segues into something about racing and then the page after that it segues into government intervention in the automotive market that affected how nissan came to the u.s and then hmm. the page after that it's like looking at the fair lady again and i why mean it was yeah called you've the got fair lady. this like a side of non-z related or fair lady is related yeah uh, it's, it's just like it's like i said clicking through wikipedia one thing another hmm. thing another thing so uh, pick something and expand on it bring bring me into this world of why this car was created I also wanted to add, I think these kinds of books will be really um, important going forward because I think that there's going to be a, um, a, a rising market for Japanese uh, classics like the Z. Um, and I think we're seeing some some values going up for these cars. I think Bring a Trailer had a, you know, you, you'll see on Bring a Trailer a couple of really bizarre pur- purchases. And I know that doesn't usually represent the the classic car or the car values out there. but I certainly hope Bring a Trailer doesn't. (laughs) You do see some quite interesting results. For example, I think there was a a Civic that went for some insane amount of money. There's an M3 that went for $250,000 this week. Jeez. An E30 M3. I mean, that's that's absurd. 
but I do think that you know the the Japanese cars were will soon get their 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 day in the in in spotlight on the classic car the coll- classic collector status, and I think the Z will definitely be one of those if it isn't there already. And I think this kind of book will be important, especially one that you know if it had a little bit more in depth um, details about what a restoration would look like, what a fine example on the used market would be well, like. Well, it's, it's not a buying guide per se. I, I'm not faulting it for not having that, but I am faulting it for not really – it's 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 not – the breadth of the subject is not as great as – is, is more than its depth. Well, then what I mean is in, in comparison, you know, a book like this on the 9-11 would go in depth as to what makes the 9-11 such an important collector's item. And if the this book doesn't – fulfill that then you know it's missing that that objective and i think that's important it's entirely possible too it's just too broad of a topic i mean maybe they should have stuck to the early years of the z versus the later years because uh, unlike the 9-11 i mean the 9-11 did change a lot i think if you tried to write a book that was the entire 9-11 story in depth although the one i have is is quite excellent it would be harder uh Mm -hmm. there's a lot of history and there were a lot of changes for the z in terms of technology and approach to the market um, which I think were done more in an evolutionary way with the 911, whereas with the Dats, with the Nissan and Datsun, they kind of in the 80s they were like, okay, suddenly it's a GT car, yeah. and then they changed that again in the in the 2000s. So it's, it's a lot of flip flopping. But anyway, it's you know as I said, um, get it for the pictures. Can I ask you a dumb question about the Z line of cars? Is the ZX considered a Z car as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. So all of those ZX models are considered Z cars as well. Yes, yeah, so that that really does broaden this sort of like I mean, areas the, where the, the Z was in continuous production from 1970 until 1996 in the United States. I think maybe the late 90s, and then it was picked up again in in a, I guess 2003 or four when the 350Z came out. Right. Cool. All right. Um, now let's get to some listener questions. I've got a question here from Robert Stewart who messaged us on the website. Uh, he says, hey, guys, I got an email from Volvo yesterday, yesterday about their Polestar engineered optimization packages that you can add to existing Volvos. Uh, and he's got a 2018 XC60 T6, and he wants to know if that's worth it. Now, I did a lot of research on these on these Volvo uh, Polestar engineered optimization packages. Um, they are essentially kind of uh, software uh, add-ons to your vehicle that are warranted and brought to you by Polestar. They improve the throttle response, the gear, uh, the, the transmission logic, including how quickly it changes gear, the precision at which it, it selects a gear and how long it holds onto a gear. It also has pretty strong, uh, it changes to the off throttle response. It adds a little bit more horsepower and it changes the all-wheel drive torque distribution, I think, to make it either more rear-wheel bias or maybe more 50-50 because I think the all-wheel drive system in these Volvos skews a little bit to the front wheel. So are, the there, different, are there different tiers? or? As far as I can tell, there are, there are no tiers, but you can get a package for, your, for a T5 equipped version and you can get a package for the T6 equipped version. Um, so since Robert has a T6, I'll get into that. The base T6 drive the engine that he has comes with 316 horsepower and 295 pound feet of torque and if you got this polestar engineered optimization package it would bump that up to 330 and 325 pound feet of torque which um i don't think is a ton um what's the, what's the overall be... horsepower increase what does it come out to i'm not very good at math Four, that's why 14. i podcast 14, 14 horsepower yeah 
Okay, but if it is changing where that horsepower comes on, I can understand that as being a benefit. Like if it if it's moving it, the power band to something that's more accessible. And I don't think it does that um, either. So what happens with the T6 is that the peak, um, the power, sorry, the peak torque and peak power happen later uh, in the rev range. In the rev range, so the peak power comes at 6,000 RPM instead of 5,700 RPM. And the peak torque in the Drive-V um, typically comes in at 2,200 to 5,400 RPM. And now in this optimized package, you'll only get it at 4,500 RPM. So this very sl- thin sliver for the torque. So I guess, and this is a suggestion, and I don't know if this is possible, but since it's a software reflash, couldn't you go to the dealership and try it out? I think that would be an, that would be a pretty cool... Um, I mean, I think they should be allowed to do that, but I don't see that that being that being an option. Like, it, or or if it's or if you can't try it out on your own car, if you could show up and and, and they have a, a loaner and they could flash that loaner and let you have it for an afternoon just to see, because as Sammy pointed out, it's not a huge power difference, and if if you wanted to. If you wanted to really experience whether it's going to be different than your the driving you normally do, like if you get. Uh, power that's being like as Sammy said, it seems to be pushed higher in the power band. So if you're getting it in a place where you're never going to access it in your daily driving, you're probably not going to be happy with that upgrade. But you won't really know that unless you actually drive the upgrade. I think. I think this difference is too subtle to be able to say yes or no based on the specs. I think I and I also don't know the pricing of it. In the past, the pricing for the T6 model was around fifteen hundred bucks, and I don't know if that's really worth it. Fifteen hundred um, bucks for fifteen horsepower is not bad. I would take that any day of the week. You would my, take that on my Z. I mean, <laughs> there's no no way I can get that. Uh, I will also add that I found the research for any listeners who might have a T5 equipped model. This there's a there's a far more interesting um, conversation to be had if you had a T5. And while the horsepower increase is really slight, it's two fifty one to two fifty eight, so just seven horsepower. The torque increase is huge. It goes from 258 pound-feet of torque to 295, which, if you remember, is the is the base torque torque output of the T6 model, which so I that, think is pretty important. Yeah, that makes total sense. That's sweet, right? Yes. And then um, I think for it's going to be cheaper as a T, T5 model, and I think that would make way more sense. You're pretty much getting an up like. Almost an upgrade to the T6 for thirteen hundred bucks, perhaps. At that point, you know, in the T6, we might be just be looking at the limits of what the turbo can do. Right, and I think in the T5, it makes far more sense. Yeah, and especially because you probably bought the T5, hoping to save some money, but then as you've driven it, you might be able to, you might feel like you've tapped it out, or you know what it's worth, and you want a little bit more excitement, and now you can spend that money uh, afterwards at the dealership to get um, some more performance and closer to the T6 level. I think that's a good idea. But for the T6, I don't think, I'm not sure that's the best use of your money. And I think Ben is right. If you can go to a dealership and see what that's like, um, or if it's reversible, that would be uh, worth doing as well. So if anyone listening right now has questions that they would like to ask us, it can be about anything automotive or deeply personal questions about Sammy's personal life, you can get in touch with us in a number of ways. Uh, The easiest way, well, I mean, maybe not easiest, but most people have web access. Go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com and there's a form on the website where you click... 
click contact us and you can get in touch. It goes right to our email inbox and then we can answer you um, on a, on an upcoming episode. If you want to get in touch with us on social media, you can do that too. You can find Sammy on the cesspool that is Twitter. He is at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. You can find me on Instagram where people are just generally nicer. And it's at Benjamin, uh, sorry, I was going to say it's at Sammy uh, underscore ha again. It's actually at Hunting Benjamin. You can also email me Benjamin at Benjamin.com, Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com, the old school way. Right. Actually, it is worth pointing out uh, if you do have a personal question, and I do have some some you know things going on in my personal life i'll have you note that i didn't talk about the subaru robot at all during our legacy conversation i think me and the subaru uh, robot are done right now wow Um, well you'd think so and yet you just brought it up so i don't know who to believe that's true too um additionally um ben before we sign off for the day i would love it if you could plug your graphic novel one more time and that kickstarter Sure. Uh, you can find my graphic novel at www.code-45.com. It's a story of dragons, drugs, and underground raves in the metro tunnels below the street, city streets of Montreal, where it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. It's on Kickstarter right now, issues one through three. We had a great response to the issue one campaign. We're offering all three issues now. There's going to be two more issues to wrap things up in the future, so it's a five-issue series. But code-45.com to check it out. Uh, We have online versions like a digital download. We also have print versions and we have some other cool rewards up there. Very cool. And Ben, uh, I imagine, appreciates all the support. I think he's told me that in the past. He appreciates all the support. Um, And I think that goes a long way. So thank you guys for listening and thank you uh, for contributing to Ben's uh, Kickstarter. And Sammy, what are you going to be driving next week? What are we going to be talking about next week? Oh, I'll be driving a Mercedes AMG GTR. Okay, and I am driving a Ford Mustang EcoBoost with the high performance package. Very cool. Is Did it I just say EcoBoost? 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 I don't know how it's that Halloween. came out. It came out weird. Um, anyway, go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com to hear all of our past episodes and to catch our future ones and sign up with your favorite podcatcher so you can hear the GTR EcoBoost scoop. <laughs> yeah. Bye, everyone, and thanks for listening.